Hello and welcome to QIC's QPod Investor Podcast Series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development. And each Monday morning, I'm lucky enough to be invited into the Liquid Market Group's market meeting to get a briefing on the latest economic data, influential macro themes, and of course, the latest financial updates across the equity, fixed income, commodity and currency and volatility markets. So we might start off. Stu, um, just given it's been a big week over the last week, can we start with uh, the asset markets performances and also the major themes you've been witnessing? Sure, Craig. Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a difficult week last week for risk assets. Uh, Wall Street, the S&P 500 lost around two and a quarter percent. NASDAQ did a little better. European stocks did a bit worse. Uh, and it was a reasonable outperformance by the ASX with the uh, ASX 200 up a quarter of a percent. Uh, you know, the damage there to risk assets was done on Tuesday and Wednesday. You know, Tuesday, we had infectious diseases expert Fauci warning that reopening the economy too soon will lead to needless deaths. And Wednesday, risk appetite was hurt by Fed Chair Powell's speech, which struck a very negative tone uh, and an extremely challenging outlook. And also throughout the week, there's this undercurrent of growing friction between the US leadership and China, with action taken on Friday to further restrict Huawei's access to US technology and also local press warnings of countermeasures by China against US firms and individuals. And those US firms include uh, some tech stocks along with um, with Boeing as well. And uh, really, it was a good effort by stocks to swing back to positive on Thursday and Friday uh, in spite of some data, which again, obviously looks quite terrible. Um, and uh, it was probably inspired more so by the ongoing reopening of the US economy, easing of restrictions there, and and also the global economy, but also a rebound in energy prices as well. And Stu, anything with regards to the US and China situation you want to update us on? And if you can, maybe look, that, look to segue that into a COVID-19 update as well. Sure. You know, the, there's been a ongoing war of words from Trump uh, and the US administration. Um, Trump has been leading it and, and the, the, I guess, war of words from his uh, administrative colleagues has, has been even more um, difficult or challenging for China to, to, to take. And it's really the Chinese press who have come back and have warned against countermeasures. And we saw a bit of an influence on price action on Friday from that. The China's being challenged not just by the US, but also across the, the globe. And we've got the World Health Organization meeting later this week, um, which the General Assembly, which could be a bit of a provocative meeting uh, as there is a, um, uh, a move from a number of countries, including Australia and Europe, uh, and Russia to discover the source or at least have an investigation into the source of COVID-19, the coronavirus. And so that's something that China has been pushing back on. In terms of that uh, update, uh, I'll start domestically because Australia is now around 51st 
on the list of infections, total infections. Early on, we're well in the top 20. So again, it's uh, it's very pleasing to see from a domestic perspective. And there's also a very large amount of tests. We've we've had over a million tests domestically now, which is pretty good for a population of under 30 million. Um, however, globally, there's still too high a prevalence of new infections, particularly across the developing world. Sunday was the biggest day of new infections with over 100,000 globally, led by the Americas. Uh, and of course, we've got the USA there, but particularly growing in Brazil, Peru, Chile, um, and also a high rate of infections across Russia, which remains close to 10,000 a day, uh, India and the Middle East as well. You know, what we spoke about last week was the challenging second half as the US states ease restrictions and whether it is too early and whether we see another surge in reinfections. It's still too early to get a gauge on whether we're going to see an acceleration there. Uh, and nationally, the US is still around 23,000 new infections a day. Texas and Florida look to be providing some interesting case studies uh, as they ease restrictions. There is still an evidence. Uh, early evidence of a pickup in infections, uh, but it's also associated with an increase in testing across the board. So it's it's still too early to be definitive there. Uh, and of course, we do have that uh, World Health Health Organization General Assembly later this week, as I mentioned. Stu, just quickly, as Australia goes into, so I suppose um, our second phase, in the sense that we're now getting a little bit more social post the uh, Friday announcements from the individual state governments, is there any of the countries that have gone through a lockdown and have emerged and have gone through that socialisation? How are they going with regards to any re-emergence re of infection? There has been talk that every time there's a bit of an outbreak, there's a lot of emphasis on it. And I'm thinking here around China, I'm thinking Germany, I'm thinking South Korea. But when you actually look at the numbers, it's still very manageable and it's still very contained at the moment. You know, South Korea has got that outbreak that came from the nightclub um, the number of cases, I think, are in the 100, or, or between 1 and 200, which isn't too dramatic. And they're very quick at tracking that down with the contact tracing uh, and really putting a, a stop to the spread of the, the source or the infection. So, you know, I think so far uh, from the countries that have gone through it, the results have been fairly encouraging. Um, but, you know, we've, we do still have a long way to go for a lot of the world. Thanks, Stuart. We might switch gears into economic data. Bev, I might bring you into the conversation. So my understanding is there's been some US data updates over the weekend or last week, I should say, with regards to retail sales and industrial production. Can we get an update from you there? Yeah, look, Friday was um, a big day of data in the US. We got a whole um, raft of sort of official updates for April <clears throat> As you said, retail sales was one of those. So, you know, obviously um, April was right um, in the, I guess, eye of the storm for the US at that point. Um, they'd already experienced a very sharp fall the previous month in March when uh, retail sales had fallen over 8% on the month. Um, and in April, they fell another 16.4%. So, you know, these are extreme... Um, numbers that are coming through now that this is the largest fall 
fall on record. And obviously, once you combine it with the March fall as well, we're, we're talking quite extraordinary collapses across the board. And the weakness was um, across the board in most retail categories, but you know, one of the hardest hit um, was clothing um, with sales down almost 80% month on month. Uh, and that's fall, following on from a 50% fall already in the month of March. So just, you know, I- extraordinary numbers in terms of, um, you know, co- the collapse in consumer spending um, through the last couple of months. Um, and, Another piece of data, I guess, you know, one of the, I guess, high profile, timely, um, official hard data that we get is industrial production. Um, and although, you know, we've talked a lot about how this this um, contraction is centred on the service sector and a lot of the service sector activity, um, they're still seeing very sharp falls in the manufacturing sector also. So 11.2% month on month fall in April. Um, that's also the steepest decline ever recorded. Um, and this data goes back a long way. So this data goes back um, 100 years. So 1920 is actually when this data started and you have to go back, um, you know, well, you can go back through that whole history and never see a month like April ever recorded before. Um, capacity utilisation also fell extremely sharply, went from 73.2% to 64.9%. That's also the lowest ever recorded um, and the auto sector really at the at the centre of all of this weakness with um, production down 71% um, month on month. So, you know, the, these numbers, um, you know, just sort of rattling off the tongue as if they're almost nothing, but but they're just, you know, in, certainly in most people's lifetime looking at these sorts of economic stats would never have thought they would ever see numbers like this. And, you know, I guess you know we've been talking about it for a few weeks. You know how how resilient the market has been to the 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 incoming data flow. Friday was no exception. Um, it just didn't bat an eyelid to these numbers, um, largely because you know they were well flagged and and well forecast already. I guess um, you know we have been talking about the fact that the market is now looking forward um, and and is sort of caring less about the de- the depth of the decline and more about the speed. Um, of the recovery and and I guess in that regard there was some interest in some of the more forward-looking data that came out of Friday night's releases so we got uh, US consumer confidence so this is now for May um, the University of Michigan survey it did improve Um, it went from 71.8 to 73.7 but but I would say you know in, in the whole scheme of things that's that's pretty disappointing uh, you know and just just a blip really you almost call that stabilization rather than improvement and within the numbers themselves um, most of the improvement came from current conditions the, the forward-looking part of that survey which tends to have the most information content for for future consumer spending actually fell a little bit further so you know put that into some contrast with what we're seeing in Australia um, we've been talking about Australia, you know, quite a strong uplift in consumer confidence over the last month and the Westpac survey seeing the strongest month on month increase um, in that survey's history. So really, you know, and get coming back to, to Stu's, you know, analysis, you know, all of this data and all of this sentiment um, the trends in it are very much corresponding to the trends in the, in the virus. So, um, you know, at the moment, US not really seeing a huge uplift so far. And, what else? So Empire, the Empire Survey, that's the first 
um, of the regional manufacturing surveys that we have um, for the month of May. And that one actually showed quite a big improvement. It went from 78, minus 78.2 to minus 48.5 and quite a big uptick in new orders. So on the whole, you know, obviously any any sort of backward looking data that's capturing, you know, the, the height of the of the lockdowns is looking really bad. Um, we're starting to see some signs of that, you know, that may might be looking a little bit better, but I would say in the US it's fairly tentative and certainly no strong evidence of a you know a strong rebound. Not not that that should be surprising. Obviously, you know, um, you, you, the economy still hasn't sort of emerged really from from lockdown significantly yet. But um, yeah, just capping off a, you know a very big week of data and you know historic um, numbers and and markets still um, taking those in their stride. Thanks, Bev. Uh, Mr. Whitaker, I might bring you in here. So Bev's just described an environment where if you look back, it's dismal. When you look forward, it's encouraging. How do we look at the pricing with regards to the Fed futures at the moment? Yes, uh, thanks, Craig. Yeah, the Fed fund futures, that was an interesting um, week for them last week. So what we saw in financial markets last week in the US in particular was this theme of negative US interest rates starting um, to pervade market thinking again. And what happened there was the Fed fund the Fed fund futures curve, which was pricing in a modestly upward sloping path for Fed for the federal funds rate, started to price in negative interest rates um, by late 2020. Now, what does negative interest rates mean? Well, it means that if if you were to borrow money rather than paying interest on that loan, you would actually receive interest or a reduction on your repayments for borrowing money. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, the whole financial system, the hurdle rate for investment, is built around positive interest rates. So negative interest rates, um, when you when you have negative interest rates, what it means is that hurdle rate for investment, whether it's in equities, infrastructure, real estate, etc., you have to you need a discount rate to work out whether or not it's a good investment or not. So if you have negative interest rates, it starts to distort the hurdle rate for investment and can create malinvestment, which could lead to bubbles and ultimately problems down the track. So what we saw last week was we saw the Fed fund, federal US federal fund sorry, US Federal Reserve members coming out and pushing back on this idea of, of negative um, interest rates in the US. And, and it was highlighted by um, Federal Reserve President Powell, Jay Powell, who was out last week also, and he used the Q&A section of his testimony to pu push back on this idea of negative interest rates. And he said that um, all FOMC participants, now that's not a statement you hear very often, that all participants um, we're not in favour of exploring negative interest rates as a current tool. However, in spite of that Federal Reserve pushback, we did see the Fed Fund's um, futures curve still pricing negative interest rates from April 2021 to March 2023 at the end of last week. We believe this move was more a bit more technical in nature. It was driven by more by bank hedging flows um, rather than a fundamental rethink on the Fed's willingness to take rates negative. So the Fed's been consistent in, for a while now in pushing back on this on this idea of negative interest rates, and that was consistent with um, what we saw last week as well. So we think this is more a move around bank hedging flows, as the we have this zero low bound now in the US. It's created a need for them to come in and hedge against the possibility of negative interest rates. 
Thanks, Andrew. Um, Richie, I might uh, switch to you because, and, and staying with that, so I suppose that topic around the Federal Reserve. And my understanding is there was some ETF buying that started up last week. Can you talk us through that quickly? Yeah, sure, Craig. Yeah, I mean we've been waiting for this for some time in the credit markets, and you know we have talked for some time around, you know, the announcement effect of the Fed buying credit, and you know how it allayed um, the serious concerns about market liquidity that we saw, you know, at the extremes in March, um, and so. Just the announcement effect brought down that, that sort of extreme volatility. Um, and the market's now really wanting the Fed to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So still very early days here, but they've actually started buying in the secondary market corporate facility. Um, and the Fed data shows that they bought um, 305 billion of corporate bond ETFs last week. And that's to um, the week ended Wednesday, May 13. So, so the data's only, um, to Wednesday, and given that it probably only incorporates one day of buying from the Fed, so it's hard to extrapolate too much from that right here and now. But if we assume that they can buy 30 billion of ETFs under this program, they bought 305 in a day, um, and they can buy at this pace for 100 business days, which brings us close to the the September 30 cutoff for this program. Um, it, it kind of um, means that um, you can uh, that they're going to buy you know around 30 billion, um, and then if you compare this to the ECB buying program, which has been in operation for some time, the ECB bought around 150 um, million daily of corporate bonds on average over the last year, and but it's um, but the ECB market or the European market's only 30% of the size of the USIG and high yield market. So therefore, at this stage, you know, the Fed buying program doesn't look as meaningful. Um, however, you know this analysis might be a bit of a moot point. What the market's really looking for is when the Fed come and buy the secondary um, individual bonds and so potentially the the ETF. So the, the program. Um, that we're talking about this week may be the pea shooter and, you know, the purchase of individual bonds, hopefully, um, but this is not a given, is is the bazooka. So really we need to stay tuned to this um, and, you know, it's likely to happen, you know, towards the end of the month, um, the market believes. Um, and then I'll just switch quickly to an update on, um, on macro credit on Friday night. It's a really quiet night, actually, Friday, not a whole heap to say. Um, you know, the US cash spreads had mixed performance. IG traded a little wider, high yield, had a strong rally really led by communications and, and energy. Um, and pri primary buying activity was really low, only 3.25 billion, um, taking weekly issuance to around 60 billion. Um, Europe had a subdued session on Friday um, where spreads finished mostly unchanged. And then just looking locally, Credit Suisse looking to potentially bring a three-year deal to the Aussie market. Um, and this is no doubt on the on the success of UBS and, um, and Woolworths deals last week that effectively opened the um, Aussie primary market after, um, you know, the, the volatility that we saw through March. So, you know, we'll be taking a good look at this, um, at this deal to see if it makes sense for, for our funds. Thanks, Richie. Um Stu, we might switch back into the currency space. So last week you're updating us that uh, the um, the uh, RBNZ started a purchasing program for foreign investments. Um, has that had much of an impact with regards to currencies? Yeah, thanks, Craig. They haven't started that yet. They have flagged it as an option, and it and is one of the alternatives that they listed 
a couple of years ago, but it was obviously well off the radar then. And uh, But they've reiterated that that remains an option that they can expand their large-scale asset purchase program into foreign assets. And that would really be the nuclear option for them to, um, you know, they've got limits on how much they can do domestically. They've announced that they're taking their cap up to from 33 billion Kiwi to 60 billion Kiwi uh, with authority from the government to buy up to 50% of government bonds on issue and 30% of inflation indexed and local government financing authority bonds. So, you know, fairly, you know, they don't call it unconventional measures now, they just call it alternative measures because they've become so common. And, you know, they've really differentiated themselves quite a bit here from the RBA. Uh, Kiwi dollar was the worst performing currency over the week. Uh, that is because they are really pushing the boundaries of what they, you know, what they can do. Uh, they are preparing to take rates negative there. They're at their effective lower bound at the moment of 0.25%, but they've said that the local banking industry aren't ready operationally for negative rates, and they've been giving them warnings for some time to get ready and make sure they're ready by early next year. So um, the market really is preparing for the RBNZ to move to negative rates next year, uh, and um, you know that's having an impact on the currency market. And, and I think the only other thing to flag from late last week on currencies is really the underperformance of the pound as well and that's related to those brexit negotiations which aren't really going particularly well but i think we're going to hear more about that later thanks Stu. bev we might come closer to home aussie bonds and provide us an update there but also maybe starting to segue in our biggest trading partner in china and some of the data coming out of china at the moment yeah, thanks, Craig. It was pretty quiet on Friday. Um, not a lot going on. Um, obviously, Friday is not uh, an RBA buying day um, anymore. But, you know, I guess the, the most interesting development of the week was the fact that the RBA didn't um, buy any bonds at all, um, not even semis um, for the for the whole week. So, you know, I think it might be some time before we see the RBA back in that market. It's, it's it, you know, it's going well for them. You know, obviously bonds are pretty stable here. Um, the supply has been taken down pretty well and they've been able to do that without buying any bonds. So I think they'd be pretty happy with, with those developments. Um, Maybe the only thing to flag is, and again, I'm I'm not all over this, but I, I do believe the highlight of the week. There's going to be, uh, I think it's a webinar. Um, it's a, sort of a combined um, meeting where Phil Lowe, I think APRA and ASIC uh, are joining forces to talk about, you know, bank regulation. So this is a normal event. It happens once a year, but that th they're doing it a, a, a sort of a slightly un unusual timeline this year. So I'll just. Um, you know, we'll follow up on that. And if anything interesting comes out of that meeting, um, we'll, we'll let you know later in the week. But but other than that, it's pretty quiet. I, you know, I'm just looking this morning at sort of where yields are sitting and they really just haven't moved for, for two or three weeks now. They're going, you know, very, very stable through all the data, stable through the supply. Um, so, yeah, it's just, just a very low volatility environment for bonds at the moment. And Bev, just staying with you, um, with regards to implications for our recovery and some of the Chinese data coming out, I know that Steve's going to come uh, update us on the National People's Congress shortly, but is there any uh, interesting data coming out of the Chinese market to be aware of? 
Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's very clear signs that China is now rebounding um, and in a, you know, a fairly uh, emphatic way. So, you know, China is, I guess, the um, the poster child for the world to see, you know, how you can come out of lockdown and, and what growth starts to look like. And, and we'll obviously get more data, you know, as, as the weeks go on. But, um, you know, as the first in, first out, um, th- there's very good signs there that, um, you know, they're, they're rebounding quite meaningfully here. So, we, yeah, we, we did get some data on Friday. So industrial production um, bounced. Uh, it, it's now back to positive year on year. That was um, better than expected. Um, retail sales still still lagging a little bit. Um, but generally speaking, I think IP is the one I think that, that the world is watching. Um, and, and that looks, you know, qu- quite encouraging. The market didn't react a whole lot to that on the day. But um, yeah, I think it, it, it'll be the one to watch just to see um, what the other side looks like for everyone. Fantastic. And um, good for those countries who produce oil, uh, iron ore, of course. Uh, Steve, um, with that China uh, topic in mind, a um, couple of big assemblies coming up that could shape uh, some policy. Can you provide us an update there? Yeah, sure. Um, so the real sort of news starts toward the tail end of the week, but on the on the 22nd, which is Friday, is the, um, is the annual get-together of the, the National People's Congress. Now, this has been postponed from March, so obviously um, you couldn't get nearly 3,000 delegates together in China in March, but I suppose a bit of a sign of the opening up is the fact that they are actually having this Congress now in May. I think, you know, obviously it's a it's a big meeting and it's really the top authority in the country, so they get together once a year and sort of set the policy agenda. Um, I think some of the things that the market's really looking for um, happened quite early on. So Premier Li Keqiang um, reads out an annual government work report, um, and that includes a lot of the parameters that sort of, you know, shape policy for the next year. Uh, one of the key things the market usually looks for in that is what China expects its GDP growth to be. Um, and obviously then that there's big implications as to whether they're going to hit that target or not for the rest of the year. There's some... Um, speculation this year that that he won't actually announce a numerical target so the focus this year may well change from hitting a gdp target and this is something that was hinted a bit by um president xi last year where they talked about look we're focusing more now on quality of growth than amount of growth but i think given the um the the COVID-19 epidemic and and the effect that it's had on China and and China's growth, they kind of, they may well give that target away and instead just focus on other areas of policy with a key, really a key um, area now being maintaining or improving the the, um, employment in the country. So it'll be interesting. I think the market at the beginning is kind of looking for, well, is he going to announce a growth target? If he is, what's it going to be? And if he isn't, then what are they going to focus on instead? So those are some of the things I think we'll probably have more to speak about next week but i think it's just to be aware really that um sort of friday and over the weekend there'll there'll be quite a lot of you know news policy news coming out of china um for us to digest uh i think it's also just going to be interesting in the backdrop of a new sort of area of uncertainty for the chinese is, is um you know i think the american administration trying to deflect the blame of their poor handling of the crisis back onto China. So escalating again, the trade war and as, as Trump's popularity has fallen, 
looks like he's he's going back to his playbook of you know blaming China and um, in the past that's been a popular way for him to um, to get some traction. So I think one of the concerns just to hold around the whole China thing is an escalation of you know trade war rhetoric, if nothing else. Um, a as his popularity seems to be you know what we're watching is popularity and how the, how the American people respond to his handling of the crisis, which so far hasn't been great. And then secondly, as we get closer to the election, if if it looks like um, he is falling behind in the polls, you expect to see sort of more um, of these kind of provocative discussions that, that have come up in the last few days, I think. So that's something to watch. And it'll be interesting again to, to see how or if the National People's Congress kind of comes up with any thoughts around the World Health issue that, uh, or, you know, the coronavirus inquiry that Stu mentioned earlier, and then secondly, the relationship with um, the US and trade. Wonderful. We might um, leave it there, Steve, uh, Steve on China, because I want to get yep. into some of the comments that um, Stu made before around um, currency markets, in particular the Brexit negotiations. Paul, can I bring you in here with regards to where it's at, what the confidence levels are like, and perhaps then also providing us an update more generally around Europe? Yeah. Um, so over the weekend, um, certainly sort of the end of last week, the uh, the relative players within Brexit crawled out of their lockdown chambers and um, immediately started to declare skullduggery against each other. You know, and 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 I think this sort of punch and Judy show will continue. Um, nothing really new in terms of solid uh, information, to be honest, Craig. That came out. It, it's really just. Um, the usual sort of uh, stalemate that we've been reached. And of course, that's seen some pressure on the uh, sterling. What also added to the pressure on the sterling, I think this has intensified over the weekend, has been Andy Haldian. Uh, he's the chief economist over at the Bank of England uh, in discussing in the Sunday uh, newspapers and interviews that um, negative interest rates and even further QE is... Uh, is very likely and is certainly being discussed at the Bank of England inside their chambers. In Europe as a whole, I think it was more interesting outside of outside of the UK, actually. Um, we, there's, there is a rumour going around, or well, it's not a rumour, it's, it's, it's the, the proposed package is going around of um, uh, Fiat Chrysler actually being uh, given a bailout of the tune of over 6 billion euros. Uh, that comes back on the, you know, quick on the heels of the uh, 5 billion euro bailout for Renault that we saw a few weeks ago. And of course, there's a lot of um, finger pointing in Europe at the moment over uh, state aid, which is completely distorting the single market. That's kind of part of the reason it's not actually allowed. However, um, the biggest offenders proportionally is actually Germany at the moment. So it's quite a fascinating dynamic that's going on in Europe there. And, and in particular, um, if you remember uh, a chap called Manfred Weber, he uh, he was one of the uh, main contenders for the European Commission uh, head. He didn't end up receiving it. Um, however, he's actually still the head of the European People's Party and the European Parliament, which is one of the major, it is the biggest trading bloc, or the biggest voting bloc, sorry, in the European Parliament. And um, the European Parliament's got a lot of power here. They can they can hold off any budget uh, ratification. Um, so they're they're certainly looking to to bring in this sort of more um, federalized grant bailout in the form of grants, which would be very beneficial. But also Manfred Weber just uh, 
uh, talked over the weekend about banning Chinese takeovers of European companies for 12 months. Uh, he's a very serious uh, senior leader within the CDU, which is Angela Merkel's the leading coalition uh, member party in um, in Germany, uh, and such sort of uh, nationalistic sentiment is quite interesting to hear uh, from someone like that. Um, so I thought that was that was very interesting. We'll we'll see how that plays out over the coming weeks and months. But certainly, you know, if you take uh, any of these sort of major trading blocks, be it China, uh, Europe, or or the U.S., they're certainly um, starting to retrench and uh, looking after themselves first is certainly where we seem to be going. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I think that's a global theme as well in some ways. Um, maybe then switching to US corporates, Phil. Um, interesting week ahead with regards to some retail updates. Can you provide us an update there? Yeah, sure, Craig. Um, so just to recap on where reporting's up to in the US. So last week was pretty quiet. That's because we're getting to the tail end of the reporting season. We're just over 90% through. Um, but this week, we've got some of the big retailers reporting, and that's because they're they're a January year end. So um, they're a month later than most of the um, constituents of the S&P 500. So we've got Walmart. Um, basically, tomorrow night, Walmart, Home Depot. Then we've got on uh, Wednesday night, Lowe's and Target. So all of these corporates are basically have been very resilient and um, in this crisis. They're not, or big chunks of their revenue segments are not the non-discretionary sort of specialty retail. Um, there's big segments of groceries in there. Obviously, the Home Depot and the Lowe's are the, the US versions of Bunnings. Um, so quite interestingly, just on a um, before talking about the expectations, their share prices were really heavily hit um, during March when it was, I guess, lockdown and the severity of that was... Um, wasn't clear in the US, um, but they haven't been locked down and they've their sales have probably broadly been maintained or that's the expectation. So the, their stock um, stock prices, an example would be Home Depot, which was down, I think, around in the order of 50%, and it's come back to only be 3% down. Um, so it's the rally, the extremes of the moves were probably more than the overall equity market and they, all of these stocks are near their all-time highs. So that's just out of interest. Um, so if you talk about what's expected, um, Walmart, which is the biggest one, their market cap's about $350 billion. Uh, so we're the Q, the fourth quarter revenue expecting 4% growth um, and roughly flat EPS. And this is year over year. So against Q, um, the January quarter of last year. Um, and then Home Depot, just as the next largest, uh, their market cap's about $250 billion. Uh, so there's they're looking at sort of similar. So where is that numbers there? So yeah, slight increase in revenue and and slightly lower EPS, but but not overly dramatic moves in terms of operations. They're actually very well placed. So I think it's more the specialty retail and the, the reports that we've seen previously from some of the department store operators, the Coles and Macy's, that were more interesting um, from an overall perspective and giving a read on. The next quarter and i guess that means that's leads us to um the outlook statement so i don't believe any of these have pulled outlooks so walmart being the big one they do maintain an outlook so that will be closely watched as to whether they continue to maintain an outlook for the next quarter so we'll keep an update on that when they come out during the week thanks phil and certainly put some pressure on those consumer sentiments uh, that bev mentioned earlier 
Rob, we might uh, leave a final word to you with regards to uh, the equity markets, the energy commodity markets and volatility. Uh, Stu gave us an update in the week uh, that passed in terms of the market returns, but can you give us an update in terms of those uh, those areas of our economy? Thanks, Craig. Um, I guess probably the most interesting thing we saw over the week was the moves in um, the energy markets, or particularly in the crude oil markets. We saw the prompt contract, which is the front contract of WTI, up about $5. And the Brent, which is probably more accurately uh, pricing the global market, it was up only about just under $2. What's particularly interesting there is that all, all the action was really at the front end of the curve. And prices that were sort of past nine months pretty much ended the week unchanged. Um, that rally is really, I guess, on the demand side has come from um, optimism around reopening of the global economy and demand increasing. And then on the supply side, what we've seen is US um, shale oil producers continue to cut rigs. And in terms of all the OPEC announcements, which sort of happened at the beginning or happened last month, but were for implementation. Uh, this month, um, there's been positive signs in terms of actually following through with those cuts, um, which has, I guess, helped with uh, reducing the supply of oil globally. In the equity volatility markets, um, Friday was pretty quiet, uh, as pretty much everyone has sort of said. Uh, over the week, we saw a range of about nine vol points, so from around about 28 all the way up to 36, and the, um, the forward curve ended up pretty much flat uh, within the range of 32 to 33 vol all the way out to past the US elections. Thank you everyone for bringing us up to date and highlighting what we all feared, uh, being that our globally coordinated and relatively swift response to COVID-19 has in fact led to some of the worst economic data seen for over a hundred years. But unlike past crises of this magnitude, the silver lining is in the encouraging sentiment starting to filter through. I look forward to catching up with you all next Monday. Thank you for listening. Please watch out for our upcoming QPod podcast and have a great week ahead.